This honor all his faithful have. Oh, do ye praise the Lord. Amen indeed. Well, friends, if you would take your copy of God's word in hand, once again, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Once again, Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 3. We return again to this rich, breathtaking prayer of the Apostle Paul, which we began to consider over the last couple of weeks, just last week and moving on this week and next week as well. It's a section that's chock full of doctrine and it's well worth our time, so we're slowing down a bit on this section and doing a little three-part examination. Last week and tonight we look at verses 14 through 19 and then God willing, next Lord's Day we'll consider the doxology there in verses 20 and 21. So first we'll read the scripture and then we'll ask for God's help and blessing as we study together. So let's look to God's word. Ephesians 3, I'll begin reading at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints What is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. Would you pray with me, friends? Lord our God, would you once again give us ears to hear what the Holy Spirit says to his church. So that we may read and learn, and mark, and inwardly comprehend, and more than that, treasure all that we consider and all that we study as your word is read and proclaimed tonight. And we ask it all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we've been making our way through the epistle to the Ephesians since early June, a sort of summer series, more or less. And as I mentioned, Uh, We began last Lord's Day morning to consider this great prayer, and tonight we'll pick right up where we left off and focus particularly on the words of verses 17, 18, and 19, though we will continue to make frequent reference to the surrounding verses uh, in terms of context. You may remember as we studied Paul's prayer here at the end of chapter 3, we noted, as many commentators have noted, not not an insight unique to me by any stretch, that Paul's prayer is a sort of stepladder prayer. That is, each request builds upon the next and upon the previous, building and building and building and ascending higher to that apex at the end there of verse 19. Look again at verse 19 just to refresh your memories. What is it that Paul's driving at? What's the chief end of Paul's prayer here? In all of his prayers for these Ephesian Christians, what's his great desire? It's that the Ephesians and we, all Christian saints, might be filled with all the fullness of God, that we might have as much of God as we are capable of knowing and capable of having, that our our minds and our souls might be filled to the maximum, uh, a cup full to the brim and spilling over. Think of that imagery of Psalm 23, that a cup would runneth over. A maximal enjoyment of God, our Savior, maximal communion with our God. That's what the apostle wants for his people. And we looked at the way that Paul structured his prayer for them as he makes his way towards that climax here in verse 19, right? So verse 16, Paul prays first 
that we would be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in our inner being. And then in verse 17, right after that, he explains what the consequence is of that strengthening. When you get strengthened by the Holy Spirit, what's going to happen? It is that Christ might dwell in our hearts through faith. Now, of course, the whole—excuse uh, me—the the Lord Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, already dwells within the heart of a Christian. Right? That's the definition of a Christian. They are in Christ, and Christ is in them. But Paul is saying that there is more, more of the indwelling Christ to know and, and enjoy in this Christian life. But what is that going to look like, you may ask? If, if I want, if I pray the, along with Paul, if I pray this prayer for myself in my own morning devotions, in my own morning prayers, when I roll out of bed, if I pray to have more of the indwelling of Jesus in my life, and you see this prayer, and you think, well, this seems, it's Holy Scripture, it's, it's divinely inspired, it's in air, and it's from, the, it's from the Holy Spirit, it must be a good prayer to pray, and so you read along in these words, and you begin to pray, God... Lord, strengthen me with power through the Holy Spirit in my inner being, that Christ might dwell in my heart through faith. And if you pray that prayer, what will it mean for God to answer that kind of prayer? What's it going to look like? Well, that's what verses 17 and 18 of Ephesians 3 are about. What does an answer to that prayer look like? Well, at least in part, it looks like this. Look at the text, verses 17 to 19. Notice how Paul frames this experience of deeper knowledge, deeper fellowship with the Lord Jesus. Notice how he frames it in terms of love. He says, I want Christ to dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend together with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. As one man put it, to know more, Paul's driving at this, to know more of the indwelling Christ in your life means to taste and savor and enjoy more of the experience of his love. Close quote. To know more of the indwelling Christ in your life means to taste and savor and enjoy more of the experience of his love. Now, as I was studying this text and reading various commentaries, there was one outline that I especially liked. Frankly, I didn't think I could improve upon it, so I thought we would just use it for our outline this evening. Three things, especially, that we are taught here about the love of Christ. And the first of them is that Christ's love for Christians, for you, if you're a believer, is a secure love. Rooted and grounded, he says, a secure love. That's verse 17. Then secondly, in verse 18, Paul reminds us that the love of Christ goes beyond the bounds of a mere individual. It's not just me, myself, and I. It's not less, let's be clear here, it's not less than a personal relationship with Christ Jesus to invoke the common parlance. It's not less than that, but it is more than that. It is with all the saints, Paul says. The love of Christ is a corporate love. That's verse 18. And then thirdly, in verses 18 and 19, it's a boundless love. Paul desires for us to know the breadth of, length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So a secure love, a corporate love, and a boundless love. Those are the three parameters by which we'll study our passage tonight. So let's get to it, shall we? First, a secure love. Verse 17, he prays about the Ephesians being rooted and grounded in love. 
Now, I appreciated how many sermons and many commentaries pointed out that even though it appears nice and smooth and polished over in our English translations, if you're using an ESV or an NASB or a New King James or an NIV, whatever you might have before you, in your Greek New Testament, which I know all of you have open right alongside your English Bibles tonight, in the Greek New Testament, in the original languages, the wording there is a bit more awkward, and therefore it's all the more striking. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, the phrase, rooted and grounded in love, if you were looking at it in the Greek, you don't, you're not wrong if you're not, don't worry about that. It's not abundantly clear if Paul means to attach that statement to his previous thought or to the following or the subsequent thought. The, the, the statement just sort of dangles out there a little awkwardly. Does he mean to say that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are or, or because you are rooted and grounded in love? Is that how he means to phrase it? Or does he attach it to the subsequent thought? And it might be something like this. Christ dwells in your heart through faith, period. Be rooted and grounded in love so that you may have strength to comprehend, etc., etc. Now, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version tonight. Many of you are as well. And so you see there that the, the translators had to make a judgment call. In verses 17 and 18, Paul prays in this translation that you comma, being rooted and grounded in love, comma, may have strength to comprehend the love of Christ. And that cleans it up very nicely. But in actual fact, that, that phrase, rooted and grounded in love, grammatically just sort of dangles out in isolation, and we're not sure where best to connect it. And translators, translation committees, they have to make a judgment call. That's fine. In other words, when Paul says, you are grounded in love, does that have more to do with Christ dwelling in our hearts or does it have more to do with the fact that we need strength to comprehend? You're grounded in love because he's dwelling in your hearts, or you need to be grounded in love because you need strength to comprehend. It seems, for lack of a better term, that what we have here is one of what I like to call Paul's wonderful holy interjections, holy interruptions, where Paul almost interrupts the flow of his own thoughts with these wonderful outbursts, these, these assertions, these reminders of the unshakable grounding of the status of a Christian because of what God has done. Or those times when, when Paul bursts out and prays mid-sentence as he's prone to do from time to time. Right? What we have here in this clause, in this verse, seems to me an awful lot like what we saw back in chapter 2 in verse 5, where right in the middle of, the, of his flow of thought, Paul bursts out with a reminder to the Ephesians. You can turn there with me if you want to. Ephesians 2, verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. Big hyphen, big M dash. By grace you haven't saved. Another M dash. He's interrupting his own flow there. Well, here in verse, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 17, he's saying to them, you are rooted and grounded in love. It's rather more grammatically, I'm persuaded, like Paul is doing that again. He's attaching a big, fat hyphen on either side of that phrase, attaching it to everything he was saying and to everything he's about to say. So does it apply to the preceding statement or does it apply to the subsequent statement? And the answer, I think, is yes, both. It's more of an undergirding than anything else, grammatically speaking and theologically speaking, an undergirding. It's an all-encompassing truth that gives us the secure foundation in order to understand everything that else that he's about to say. It's almost like asking the question, I'm building, I'm building let's pretend I'm, I'm building a house, 
from scratch, new construction. I'm building a foundation for my house. Is it more important that the foundation that I'm going to build underpin my bathroom or my kitchen? Do I want no foundation under my kitchen or do I want no foundation under my bathroom? And of course the answer is, well, you want both, silly. You want foundation under every room of your house. You don't want it just to chip away somewhere. It's both. You want foundation both places. I love how one commentator put it. He said this, Before anything else, Paul wants us to understand our security in the love of Christ. Like a tree with roots, though shaken by earthquakes and buffeted by the storms, we are rooted in Christ's love and held secure. Close quote. Rooted. For four years and some change, we lived in Mississippi during our years in seminary. And many times in the fall, the Gulf Coast would be pummeled by tropical storms or even the occasional hurricane. Right? Hurricane Katrina, though many years ago now, is still legend in those parts. People still talk about it, the catastrophic damage it did to New Orleans, but also smaller Mississippi Gulf towns like Biloxi or Gulfport. And you'd see the news footage and the clips. There'd be, you'd see this, this poor, deranged weatherman standing at the beachfront in the midst of the storm. And there's debris flying everywhere. He's being blown over in the wind. There's houses in the middle of the street and livestock flying through the air. And you see these, these palm trees behind him, right? Bent over so far that they look like they're about to snap in half as he's standing in front of the Gulf Coast, blowing in the wind. But then the next week, the newscasters return. The storm is gone, it's gone by, and they show us the scene after the fact. There's all this destructive chaos. There's debris everywhere. There's streets, and houses, and downtown buildings leveled. But those palm trees that we saw bent over and about to snap in half, they're still there, blowing gracefully and gently as if in a summer's breeze, in the sunshine at this point. Blown about, yes, but so deeply rooted were they that they were not ripped away. Rooted, Paul says. To be a Christian is to be rooted in the love of Christ so that whatever the howling storms may pummel your soul, storms of suffering and sickness from which you're still freshly wounded, sorrow and grief, the shame of your past for some of you, the wickedness that you endured in your past or even the shame of your own sin, whatever might be hammering away at your conscience and hammering away at your psyche and hammering away at your soul. You are firm and you are secure, rooted and held by the love of Christ. But there's another image that Paul uses. First rooted, he also uses the word grounded. Another Mississippi story, if you'll indulge me. Everywhere you drive, if you've ever driven through Mississippi, you'll notice the roads are absolutely terrible. The sidewalks are terrible. Even the foundations of the houses can be terrible. They're cracked. They're buckled. There's potholes and there's small craters and what seems to be a miniature Grand Canyon down the middle of State Street in Jackson that you might lose your car in if you're not careful. And it's not because these things are just poorly maintained. It's because of the soil that's all over the state. There's a soil called Yazoo Clay. Yazoo Clay. That's the big problem. This soil shifts and moves Every time there's a major rainstorm, like the one that we had earlier this afternoon and this evening, every time there's a major rainstorm like that, the soil does not retain the water well. So the water 
cools up and it floods everywhere and the soil turns to mud and the soil shifts underneath the roads and the pavement and the foundations and there's buckling and cracking and crevices everywhere. Paul says that the love of Christ Jesus toward his saints is no such thing. The foundation of your life, Christian believer, is built upon no such foundation. It does not shift with every new storm that decides to rear its ugly head, with every new trial, with every new failure on your part. It does not shift and move beneath you. You are utterly secure, Christian, utterly secure, grounded. We dwell here for some length of time because I know that there are many of you in this room who know fickle love. Fickle love. A love that ebbs and flows. A love that is on again, off again. Manipulative. Unstable, even abusive. It's not really love at all. A love that is promised to you, right? And unless you perform correctly and unless you toe the line and do as they say and stay in the good graces of the provider of this love, that love will be just as quickly withdrawn as it was promised to you. And so, for some of us, while we may affirm intellectually in our minds that Jesus loves us, there is still this deep and abiding fear. Hallowed away in some, hollowed away in some hidden corner of our heart. A dread that like the love we've known elsewhere, a dread that the love of Jesus will one day run out, expire, be withdrawn. The Apostle Paul is telling us here that Jesus does not, does not, does not love you like that. His love never runs out. It never expires. It is never, ever exhausted toward his saints. Right? Every time you purchase a plane ticket, right, you're given a timetable, you're given a schedule. But if you look closely, you look closely at the fine print there at the bottom of the ticket. Right? So as to protect themselves from liability, from, from disgruntled customers who might be a little litigious, what does it always say in the fine print at the bottom of the ticket? All flights subject to change. Brothers and sisters, the love of Jesus Christ for you is absolutely not subject to any such change. It does not fluctuate. It is constant, and it is immovable. Now, just to make sure that I'm not misheard, let us be clear. The Lord chastens those whom he loves. Our confession is clear on that. There is such a thing as feeling his fatherly, his fatherly displeasure and sensing a, a kind of withdrawal drawal of his countenance. But that's not the same thing as having the love of Christ stripped away from you. If you want, you can take your hymnals and look with me in the back of your hymnals at the Westminster Confession. I wanted to read a few sections there for you on a couple different, from a couple different chapters. In the back, page 855, chapter 11, that's the section on justification. Chapter 11 on justification, section 5. I'll read it. And you can just keep your fingers there. I just want to read a couple different sections from our confession. Page 855, chapter 11 on justification, section 5, reads this. God doth continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified. And although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may, by their sins, fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. Or chapter 12, same page there, chapter on adoption. All those that are justified, 
God vouchsafeth in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption. They are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, and are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed for the day of redemption. Or chapter 18, skip over a few pages. Assurance, page 858, section 4, the chapter on assurance. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation diverse ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted, as by negligence in preserving of it, by falling into some special sin which woundeth the conscience and grieveth the spirit, by some sudden or vehement temptation, by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance. Skipping ahead a little bit. Yet they are never utterly destitute of that seed of God. They are never utterly destitute of that seed of God and life of faith, that love of Christ. In due time it may be revived, and in the meantime they are supported from utter despair. Sin has consequences, brothers and sisters, and our dalliances with sin, our ongoing indulgences of sin may cause some fatherly form of discipline to fall upon us. But it is fatherly discipline. It is a discipline. It is a correction that stems from a heart of love, from the hand of the Lord. Those same nail-pierced hands still bearing the scars in his glorified flesh in whose body your sins were born on Calvary's cross. It is this same Lord who would hold you fast and who loves you enough to reclaim you from sin and reclaim you from error and draw you again to himself. Do you know that hymn in our Trinity hymnal, A Debtor to Mercy Alone? It's number 463 in the hymnal. I love it. There's this line in there. His promise is yea and amen, and never was forfeited yet. Things future, nor things that are now, not all things below or above, nothing can make him his purpose forego or sever my soul from his love. Secure love. Secure love, rooted and grounded, forever safe in the love of Christ. That is the love with which he loves you, Christian. That's the first thing. Secure love. But then secondly, Paul says that Christ's love is a corporate love. It's a corporate love. Look at verse 18. Paul prays that you may have strength to comprehend together with all the saints the love of Christ. Right now, remember the point driving Paul's prayer here in verses 14 through 19. He wants the Ephesian Christians and all of us, he wants us to understand the love of Christ, to know it more and more to savor it, to cherish it in all of its sweetness and all of its life-giving potency. He wants you to know the love of Christ from when you rise up first thing in the morning to when you lie down your head at night. From your earliest memory, covenant children, he wants you to know from your earliest memory to aged saints all the way to when you close your eyes on this passing world and you open them up in glory. He wants you to know the surpassing greatness of the love of Christ every time you read your Bible, every time you seek him in prayer. But to realize that the terminus of the greatness of God's love is not merely on you as the individual. As incredible as that is, the fact that God loves you and the fact that God loves me, 
vile sinner that I am, vile wretch that I am, is marvelous enough. But the terminus is not there, as wondrous as that is. But Paul's prayer is that you would know the sweetness and the glory of the love of Christ Jesus together with all the saints. One man put it like this. There's more of the love of Christ when we're together than we can know when we're alone. There's more of the love of Christ when we're together than we can know when we're alone. Close quote. Now think of it, a body makes little sense functionally if you only have an arm or an ear. An ear is a marvelous thing on its own. An eyeball is a marvelous, incredible thing on its own, but far better when they are conjoined working together as part of the total united thing for which they were designed or created. Right? A game of chess is rather dull when you're only playing with a pawn. One pastor, uh, excuse me, one commentator pointed out this wonderful quote from David Clarkson, old English Puritan. Listen to what Clarkson says. He says, The Lord lets forth, as it were, a stream of his comforting presence to every particular person that fears him. But when many of these particulars join together to worship God, then those several streams are united and meet in one so that the presence of God, which enjoyed in private, is not but a stream. In public, it becomes a river, a river that makes glad the city of God. The Lord has a dish for every particular soul that serves him. But when many particulars meet together, there is a variety, a confluence, a multitude of dishes. The presence of the Lord in public worship makes it a spiritual feast. Close quote. Spiritual feast. You heard Dr. Wilborn invoke that language earlier this morning. We come back tonight at the close of the Lord's Day for that Sabbath feast to glut our souls again on God's goodness. I've heard former pastor of this congregation, Dr. Duncan Rankin, invoke that same phrase as well, the Sabbath feast, he calls it. Why does the scripture speak so much about the assembly of God's people, about about meeting together, about the communion of saints, about the fellowship of believers in the churches? Why does scripture seem to speak so much about this? Well, because this is the means and the manner that God has ordained for the blessing of his people, for the growth of his people in grace. For the the means by which we, they, God's people, might maximally know and experience his love. Let me put it this way. Do you want to know more of Jesus' love in your life? Then, my friends, for the good of your souls, always put a priority. Always put a premium on being in the place that he has ordained and promised to meet with you. And lavish his love upon you. Make sure you are in the assembly of the Lord's people, of God's people, Lord's Day by Lord's Day. Right? You remember Hebrews 10? Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as some are in the habit of doing, but rather let us encourage one another. And all the more as we see the great day approaching. Friends, beloved, you're here. What an encouragement you are to your pastors and to your elders that you're here to seek and to see and to savor the Lord God yet again tonight. We have folks that will listen via live stream, some of our own congregation members, some from all over the globe. We have folks that will listen to recordings of these sermons well after the fact that when they're preached here in the pulpit tonight. So for those who might be listening from afar, let me encourage you that you not forsake the assembling of yourselves from God's people. Come back every week as you're able. Come in the morning, come in the evening. Get more of God. Get more of God. Get more of your Savior. 
Come to where the means of grace are presented. Come where Christ speaks in his word, where the the table, the Lord's table is spread, and the Son of Man descends to meet with you in his grace, where all of these things are available to you freely and abundantly in the assembly of his saints. Because this is the place where Christ has ordained to shower his love upon his people. You're doing well, Covenant Church. Keep pressing on and keep glutting your souls on the goodness of God as he spreads that table, as he spreads that feast before you. Continue to partake of the great spiritual feast, the banquet that your Father has prepared. So that's the second thing for us to see. The love of Christ is secure, and the love of Christ is known preeminently or especially so corporately together in the assembly of his people. That's the second thing. Then thirdly, notice the love of Christ here is a boundless love. A boundless love. Look at verses 18 and 19. Paul prays that you, that I, that all of us, may have strength to comprehend together with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The late Anglican theologian John Stott has this marvelous way that where he explains and expounds Paul's language here. Absolutely beautiful. Here's what he says. Stott says, The love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind, long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach even the most degraded of sinners, and high enough to exalt him to heaven. Picture yourself, friends. Having died, having gone to glory, now beholding your Savior, and for millennia upon millennia upon millennia, eon upon eon upon eon, in his presence, you will still discover new glories in the love of Christ. Ever learning, ever uncovering new facets of the Savior's glories and love. Each unfolding age, if we can even, if we can even speak in such a, a temporal manner of what the concept of eternity in heaven and then the new heavens and new earth will be like every unfolding age discovering more and more of the Savior's bliss and perfections and purity and grace and love and mercy towards you. Never running out of things to learn. You'll never, never, never cease to discover fresh glories and beauties and wonders in the love of Christ. Inexhaustible is the source. You'll never fathom the bottom, the depths of the love of Christ. If I can put it this way, friends, you may know the love of Christ truly, but you will never know it completely. Finite mortal minds that we have. You can know the love of Christ, but it is so vast that it surpasses knowledge. James Montgomery Boyce years ago told this story. This is hearkening back to the days of the armies of Napoleon, the Napoleonic Wars. The armies discovered an underground dungeon that was once used during the Spanish Inquisition. Inside they found an old skeleton of a man who had been imprisoned for his faith. They found the skeleton there with the chains still wrapped around the limbs. And on the wall beside him he had scratched a very rough cross, maybe with a nail or something, And above it, the Spanish word for height, and below it, the word for depth, and in either word, the sides width and length. Clearly, this prisoner wanted to testify to the surpassing greatness of the love of Christ, something that he perceived even in his misery, even in his suffering. That fountain of endless love that sustained him even in his most dark of depths. 
So friends, do you know the love of Christ? I love how one man put it. He says, however deep you might have sunk in sin and rebellion, Paul says here that Christ's love is deep enough to reach you and save you and make you a new creature. And however far you may have wandered away from him, backslidden Christian, loving your sin and indulging it, the love of Christ is wide enough to find you and bring you home like a prodigal son to a joyous welcome. And however far you may still have yet to climb, weary Christian, on the long uphill journey of the Christian life, Christ's love is high enough to lead you all the way home to that heavenly summit. Close quote. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, and free. Christ's love for you is secure, believer in Jesus. You can trust it. You can trust it unflappably so and unfailingly so, and you can trust yourself to it. The love of Christ is corporate. It is best known... It is known most fully this side of heaven when we are together under the preached word, together as a body, together receiving the means of grace and encouraging each other in the things of God. And it is a boundless love. So however far yet you may have traveled in the Christian life, however mature, however much you may know of your Savior, there is yet much, much more to know in the glories of his love. A love that will nourish and satisfy your soul here and forevermore. Praise the Lord for the ministry of his word to us tonight. Would you pray with me, friends? Father, we thank you. We thank you that the Lord Jesus loves sinners even like us. So help us. Help us as we turn from our sin and would cling only to him. Would you wean our hearts from their fixation on this world's dull and bankrupt substitutes? And would you draw us again and again and again to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one crucified for sinners and risen to be their Savior. Seal this word upon our hearts tonight for our everlasting good and for your everlasting glory. Hear us, we pray. Amen.